One podcast to record them all. One podcast to promote them. One podcast to publish them all. And the darkness subscribe to them. In the land of Zencast... Andrew, what are you doing? Um, nothing. <sighs> Fill with a podcaster. Welcome to Lord of the Rings Month. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Lord of the Rings Month. My name's Satsunami and joining me for this not one episode, not two episodes, but three-parter because no one demanded it is the one and only Andrew. Andrew, welcome back. It's been an unexpected journey coming back to revisit this trilogy, I have to say. And then it became a desolation, if you will. Yeah. A battle of the five armies, if you will. The five episodes. (laughs) Don't give me ideas. Don't tempt me. (laughs) It's rather cool. Actually, it's not cool, but we'll get on to that. So yeah, last time we talked about the very iconic Lord of the Rings trilogy by Peter Jackson. We talked about how much we loved it. And then we thought, you know what? We are too happy. (laughs) We have watched a film that gives us nothing but joy, nothing but happiness, fond memories. Let's bring ourselves down a peg and discuss something that is rather less liked by the consensus. And that is indeed The Hobbit trilogy which again directed by peter jackson we will get into that a wee bit more but yeah where do we begin with this andrew because these films i think maybe in hindsight have been revered as being better than they were received initially just having rewatched them there are certainly aspects of it that i do enjoy even when i watched them initially there were certainly aspects i did enjoy but there was a lot of puzzlement as well when i initially watched it and then again watching it this time i was just kind of like this is dragging i'm not as invested as I was in when watching the Lord of the Rings movies. So it's not as bad as people like to talk about it being. There's still like an element of fun and fantasy intrigue to it. I think when you're weighing against Lord of the Rings, then yeah, it's understandable why people have a more negative impression of it. Yeah, because I have to say, when we were talking about Lord of the Rings, we of course grew up with it at the start of the 2000s. We watched them in the cinemas and everything. And back then, there was a real buzz for these films you know thanks to the obviously great marketing and the way the films actually turned out but when The Hobbit was announced and they said oh it's going to be two films and then they said oh it's going to be three there was a different reaction I have to say wasn't there it wasn't like people were clamoring I mean don't get me wrong they were curious I think but at least in my experience anyway I didn't see anyone who was like frothing at the mouth to see Bilbo's adventures no offense Bilbo For sure. I was just baffled that they'd stretched this tiny book into three movies. Each one of the Lord of the Rings books is bigger than the Hobbit book. And each one of those is only one movie, granted a long three to four hour movie, but still one movie. Whereas Jackson Del Toro combo bonus, they managed to stretch out this tiny book into three, pretty much three hour movies. So like nine hours worth of film for a book that I read in like an evening. (laughs) It's baffling the obvious cash grab and they succeeded. Because I looked at the box office return and it was close to three billion dollars, which obviously surprised me for an outlet of I think 700 to 800 million they invested into making these movies so I mean they got three times their return in fact like almost four times their return so they certainly succeeded in, in what they wanted to, to achieve in that regard but just in terms of actual quality I just don't think that they hit the mark No I, I totally agree with you because it was quite funny when we were researching for the original trilogy and how Peter Jackson had to fight tooth and nail to get 
a Lord of the Rings trilogy. As we saw before when they went to Miramax initially, they wanted it as two films for Lord of the Rings, then they wanted it as one two-hour film. And, you know, they really had to fight to get this near-perfect trilogy into the box office, and they succeeded. But then you've got the opposite problem where, as you said, this tiny book that isn't even as long as the shortest Lord of the Rings book has been pulled and stretched out and then they're basically I don't like to use this term but they've basically stuffed their fan fiction in between the adventure of the Hobbit and it's just it's such a bizarre thing because I don't really think and there probably are examples out there but I don't think there are many films that have done something so similar have they? It certainly rings towards like the prequel trilogy of Star Wars in terms of its kind of reception following sort of successful initial trilogy but Star Wars didn't have the existing source material that Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit have and so you kind of feel like oh why have they departed so much from this source material and as you say kind of create almost fan fiction elements creating like a love story that didn't really exist adding characters didn't exist introducing characters from the previous films that didn't need to be brought in it just kind of felt like fan service it was very strange because the weird thing about that is there are elements that were added into to the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know, like the chase between the Ring Race and Arwen, who had more of a prominent role. You had some reshufflings of the scenes. You had bits cut out. For example, in Return of the King, you had the Scourge of the Shire. You had that cut out. You had things twisted and turned. But in the end, they did it for the betterment of the film, which is weird how they're doing a similar thing here with The Hobbit, where they're adding their own things. They are twisting the elements around here, there and everywhere, or there and back again, should I say, but it just didn't land the same. Funny enough, I actually have a funny story about the first time I saw this. Have I ever told you this? That I nearly got burned out of the cinema. Oh goodness. So when I was at university my friend and I went to see this film at, I think it was about 9 o'clock ish, you know, quite late in the evening or rather it would be late by the time we left and we got to the bit you know when they're climbing up the trees and they're trying to escape the orcs at the very end of the first film and they've got the flames around them it's like oh it's so dramatic and everything and then all of a sudden the lights came on in the cinema and we were all like what's going on and the guy came out to the front and was like ladies and gentlemen there's a fire outside please exit through this fire escape and we had to go out of the cinema and we were waiting outside and I think we waited for about half an hour and then I turned to my friend and I was like well do you want to really wait this long and he was like nah let's just go home (laughs) we can look up the end online but I mean that's the thing though it's like if it was Lord of the Rings then maybe I would have been invested maybe maybe I would have stayed in the fire yeah (laughs) leave me they really invested in this uh, Mount Dooms (laughs) (laughs) fly you fools I didn't realise we were in the 4D Lord of the Rings experience. See, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, wow, the flames are really realistic. Oh, it's a hot here. Sauron's eyes are on you, like, whew, really feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case anyone's wondering, the cinema was fine. I genuinely think it was like a minor fire. The popcorn machine just like burst into flames. You know that meme image of the dog sitting in the flames and he goes, this is fine. <laughs> No, uh, the theatre was fine and I think it reopened the next day, but... It was never the same again. No, it wasn't after watching that film, I have to say. (laughs) But it was alright. It is, again, I think that just sums it up 
that if you weren't captured by the very first film, then what hopes do the following two films have? But before we go on and we talk about the good, the bad and the downright bizarre of this trilogy, I took to Twitter slash X and I decided to ask people what they actually thought of this trilogy. And it was quite curious because when I said that we were doing Lord of the Rings Month and we were going to be covering The Hobbit, a lot of people seemed to have mixed opinions. I was genuinely braced for everyone being overly negative to say, oh, it's terrible, it's just like the prequels, which apparently is a thing that a lot of people take offence at comparing it to the prequels. But I'd asked people 10 years on from when the film initially debuted in 2012, what did they think of it? So our first comment comes from the human palindrome, Mark, who says, alarm bells began ringing when it was announced that it was going to be adapted into two films. Then when it was confirmed it would be a trilogy, my fears were confirmed. And I feel as if that is the very general feeling for these films, that people thought, oh, it's going to just be two films, which is a bit long, but it's manageable to tell a fully fleshed out story. And then when they announced it was going to be a third one, it was downhill from there, wasn't it? Yeah. When it came out that they were going to do that, it was very much a case of, why have you done this? It seemed to be kind of a trend of Hollywood, stretching these out. Like, I mean, if you look at The Hunger Games, for example, the final Hunger Games book being stretched into two movies. I think the final Harry Potter book was stretched into two movies. It was very much a trend that was ongoing in Hollywood. Sometimes it makes sense and other times you're left wondering, was this really necessary? (laughs) And especially for The Hobbit, one could argue that two films made sense given that The Hobbit did brush over a lot of its scenes and it would have felt a bit jarring as a movie to have adapted it in that way. And so splitting it up made sense in that regard. But it did feel like there was a lot there that just didn't need to be included. I did like that we explored more to an extent with Bard and the river folk because it then makes the scene where Bard defeats Smaug it then feels like we've learned more about him and it isn't just like some random dude in the town over killed the dragon and the dwarves didn't really have anything to do about it it was just a random village folk that killed him and so having an understanding of who this person was does make more sense in that regard but then for every one of that you'll have Evangeline Lily's elf character and her strange storyline about it's not a phase elf dad trying to like make her own way in the world outside of the woodland elves and then having this relationship with the most handsome dwarf you ever did see you're not wrong (laughs) to be honest you're really not wrong in that regard it feels as if reading through these replies it feels as if this is quite a common theme throughout them because reading these there are a lot of people who are saying i liked bits and pieces of it but for the majority of it as you said there was the evangeline lily scenes with i think her name was Toriel in that film. It is, yeah. The only reason I remember that is because of the L'Oreal adverts, Toriel, because clearly she's not worth it since her, you know what, I won't spoil the Hobbit if nobody's seen it in the intro, but yeah, so Nostalgia Cast said in reply to this, I only made it halfway through the first one before I realised that I was all Middle-earthed out. You can tell from the start that Jackson's heart just wasn't in it. Shooting in 48 frames per second only made the effects and actors make up look fake and disproportionate from Lord of the Rings. Then following up from that, we also have Talking Smack, who says, in the first movie, the first 20 to 30 minutes until Bilbo announced he's going on an adventure, is a great interpretation. Then it's diminishing returns for the remaining six plus hours, with the exception of the scenes Bilbo shares with Gollum and Smog, respectively. We also have the film scorer saying, I watched all of them earlier this year, only to see the first one before back in the 
theatres when it was first released. I liked that one way more than I remembered. The other two were utterly mediocre. Fiery Discourse podcast said, I unironically enjoyed it and always have, to be honest. The Geeky Dad podcasting, I covered it on our show. The kids seemed to like it. You know, there's a lot of varying degrees of how people enjoyed this. And the final one we've got here is, and again, I think it just encapsulates all of these from Podcast Tonight, who says, I've got a soft spot for the Hobbit trilogy. Not gonna lie, even though it doesn't quite hit the heights of the Lord of the Rings series, it's still a fun ride. Bilbo was well drawn in the trilogy. His character arc from a timid hobbit to a brave adventurer really stood out. Gandalf, however, seemed a bit more whimsical compared to the graver persona in Lord of the Rings, but still very much the wise wizard. The dwarfs brought humour, while Thorin Oakenshield's journey from pride to humility was captivating. As for Legolas, he's just as badass as ever. See, without any further ado, will we just jump in on that note? Sorry, I say jump in just after saying Legolas reminded me of how he jumped up. From stone to stone, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even Taylor, who loves Legolas and is very much a Legolas apologist for all this ridiculous over-the-top Legolas stuff, she's like, mm, not sure that's how that works. Yeah, I mean, there is technically a scene that I never realised was in Lord of the Rings when he walks over the snow without making footprints, which I thought was cool. But That is very cool. See, I guess like if you can excuse that from a fantasy perspective, you could maybe excuse jumping from stone to stone. But then again, that is in the background. They never draw attention to it. Whereas mm, in that one, yeah. it is the focal point. But see, without any further ado, will we jump from stone to stone <laughs> of this and see whether or not the Hobbit trilogy, I would say stand the test of time, but I feel as if we know the answer. Will we jump into it? Yeah, I think so. And we will be right back after these messages. Welcome to Shatsunami, a variety podcast that discusses topics from gaming and films to anime and general interests. Previously on Shatsunami, we've analysed what makes a good horror game, conducted a retrospective on Pierce Brosnan's runs James Bond, and listened to us take deep dives into both the Sonic and Halo franchises. Also, if you're an anime fan, then don't forget to check us out on our sub-series, Chatsunani, where we dive into the world of anime. So far, we've reviewed things like Death Note, Princess Mononoke, and the hit Beyblade series. If that sounds like your cup of tea, then you can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, and all good podcast apps. As always, stay safe, stay awesome, and most importantly, stay hydrated. Movies and feelings. Pop Pop. Bring Your Own Popcorn is a podcast that dives into people and the movies who love them. Let us preach to your choir or stoke your ire as we spiral down memory lane with cult classics, Jurassics, and other genres that rhyme with traffic. What we lack in education, we make up for with comedy, compassion, and camaraderie. I'm your host, Mixtape Majesty, inviting you to join me and an assortment of wonderful guests on fine podcast apps everywhere. Bring your own popcorn. This episode is sponsored by Zencaster. If you're a podcaster that records remotely like me, then you'll know how challenging it can be to create the podcast you've always wanted. That's where Zencaster comes in. Before I met Zencaster, I was but a naive podcaster, recording on low quality, one-track audio waves. But with Zencaster, you can kiss those fears goodbye as they provide crystal clear audio and HD video. Plus, with our all-in-one podcasting suite, recording with guests is extremely simple. From local recordings to post-production, Zencaster has it all. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code CHATSUNAMI. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. 
So let's start this discussion with a positive because I feel as if when people talk about Lord of the Rings and in particular the Hobbit trilogy, they really act as if it's the worst thing ever. Like, oh, it's the most atrocious thing to come out of the fantasy world, blah, blah, blah. But will we just start with the good of this trilogy for sure i think that some of the casting is wonderful i very much enjoy martin freeman just in most things he does but i think he plays bilbo very well it's very humble earnest portrayal and i think that does the character justice i very much enjoyed watching him he very much was the highlight for me of the movies oh i'd 100 percent agree with that i think the casting in this film is really well done and i was actually quite surprised that martin freeman actually filmed this alongside Sherlock because I didn't realise that both of them were going on at the same time. Sorry, BBC's Sherlock show, which was kind of ironic because... Cumberbatch. Yeah, because of Smog, which I don't think they were together for obvious reasons filming side by side with Cumberbatch crawling on the floor but yeah, it was quite interesting to see that both of them were in Sherlock and then both of them were in The Hobbit. Well, sorry, one of the Hobbit films, one of the bit. No, I completely agree with you. I thought his acting was great. He encapsulated the kind of whimsy and the old manness if that's even a term. You know, like the grouchiness of an old hobbit or not even an old hobbit, but like a hobbit that was ahead of his years, if that makes sense. Like a young hobbit acting like an old man saying, I don't want adventure, I don't want any disruptions, I Mm -hmm. just want to live my life. And I thought that was really cool. And as one of the tweets we read out earlier described the fact that he went from this quite shy introvert character and he really came into his own. I totally agree. I thought the casting for him and the main core of characters, like obviously Ian McKellen fantastic. The returning characters, they did their jobs well. Even Tori L I think, Evangeline Lilly although her character wasn't great, I didn't think she was a bad actress. I'm going to say that now. I think for the most part a lot of the actors, even if they were a bad character, I don't think they deserve to be called bad actors because of their characters. I agree. Just on the Toriel point, I think Evangeline Lilly did play it very well and I even said to my partner, she looks very convincing as an elf. She has very elvic features, elfish features. You could see her as being a fey fantasy character. And so I think she's convincing in appearance and I think her acting is serviceable for the role. I think she portrays it well. It's, again, just a matter of writing that I take issue with for her. Because, I mean, looking at the other cast, you've got Richard Armitage as Thorin Oakenshield. And again, he has some really weird scenes at times, but I felt as if he did a good job. You also have Luke Evans as the bard and I know we'll get into the negatives later on but I actually thought he did a really good job as his character you know as this family man that's I would say looking after his family until I remembered he shot like an arrow off his son's shoulder which I have to say I was howling in the cinema when I first saw that I was absolutely laughing my head off it's like the look of fear in his child's eyes is like stay steady son (laughs) I'm just gonna kill this dragon I would be horrified if I was in that position. Not gonna lie. It's already a pretty horrifying position to be at the mercy of a dragon. Oh, absolutely. 
<laughs> but then, of course, you've got your usuals. As I said, Ian McKellen does great. You've got Eden Turner, who is Keely. And again, that links back to the Tony L question of bad, or not bad writing, but not as polished, but still does a good job with what he's given. Benedict Cumberbatch, I mean, I know he's a disembodied voice in this. He's two disembodied voices. So he is. He's Sauron and Smog. Well, he's not Sauron. He's the necromancer. Potato tomato, same thing. You've got Andy Serkis, which, let's face it, never really lost the Gollum voice. No, and I, I actually made a note on that, that like his Gollum in this is brilliant because it's ever so slightly different from his portrayal in The Lord of the Rings, but you can kind of see an aspect of why, that he still has had the ring at this point, so he hasn't gone through 60 years deprived of his precious, and so he's a very different kind of mood. He's much more inquisitive, and the whole riddle scene between the two of them was one of the highlights of the first movie, especially and potentially the entire trilogy. In all honesty, I can't really fault many people in this film. I mean, again, I'm struggling. There's two actors in particular I wasn't a great fan of. And again, it's not because they did a bad job. I think it's just the characters I didn't like. That, of course, being Stephen Fry as the master of Lake Town and... Sylvester McCoy as Radagast, which, again, I like both actors, but just not in this role. You didn't like the Radagast character then? I quite enjoyed him. I thought it was a very kind of interesting take and kind of foggy-brained forest wizard. I quite liked it. Yeah, I like the idea of him, but I feel as if I felt like Millhouse in the Poochie episode, crying, going, when are they gonna get to the Lonely Mountain? <laughs> because they kept just detouring every five minutes, and I know that's in the first film, but he was all right. It's just that certain things that we will get into, sorry, I know ironically enough I'm detracting now into the negatives, but I feel as if all actors, you're completely right, did a fantastic job. And the one thing that I feel as if is a double-edged sword, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this, but there was a lot of moments in this that felt like a real love letter to Lord of the Rings. I've said this to you half-jokingly, saying my favourite parts of this trilogy are the beginning and the end because it just it feels like that same world that was built up in Lord of the Rings. You know, you have the Shire, you have the kind of whimsy, the lightheartedness, and even when Bilbo comes back and you get the cameos between the older Bilbo and younger Frodo, I suppose is the right word, you know, you get them as well returning. I don't know, I like that. It, it made me feel nice and you know, warm and fuzzy inside, especially when we get the last goodbye song sung by Billy Boy, who of course played Pippin at the original films and that is just such a beautiful song to end on you know it feels as if it just it wraps up the whole trilogy very nicely until we get the uh, sequel trilogy where the opening line is like somehow Sauron has returned I agree with that I very much had a kind of a warm fuzzy feeling at the end and I'm usually quite critical of films doing this but I think because of my attachment to Lord of the Rings the final scene which kind of just leads into the opening scene of Gandalf coming to Bilbo's door very much hit me hard and I was like oh that was such a lovely kind of end to it. My partner was at that point being like, when is this going to end? Because <laughs> it does go on for quite a while. I explained to her that in the books, the battle doesn't even really happen, or rather isn't really told, because Bilbo gets knocked out and then wakes up in the aftermath of it. I can't remember, sorry, have you read the book? Oh yeah, uh-huh. that was something I was really disappointed in, because they built up that, and I know this is something that Tolkien wasn't a big fan of. I don't think he was a big fan of writing like the big battles and things. Yes. He was more obviously into the linguistic side 
and the building the load and everything, which is something they've done absolutely masterfully. But I remember reading The Hobbit and being so annoyed that Bilbo gets knocked out and then he just gets this speech by Gandalf about, oh, here's who's dead. This guy, this yeah. guy, this guy, that yeah, guy. Yeah, like like, he, he gets an in-memoriam. <laughs> Exactly. It's like waking up in the aftermath of the funeral. It's like, yeah, we burned the bodies over there. Imagine if in the movie the battle's about to happen, he gets knocked out and then the credits roll and he's got an in-memoriam like Billy Boyd's song playing and just all the characters like that. I was thinking more, you know, the Ed Sheeran one at the end of oh. Desolation of Smog. I was so I hate that song so much. I'm like, why is this, this is so poppy? I hate the fact that there's such a pop song at the end of this Lord of the Rings movie. It just doesn't sound right. I have to admit, as a song in its own I actually don't mind it, but I entirely agree with you as like a song to attach onto Lord of the Rings. It's a bit like, remember when Ed Sheeran was in Game of Thrones? Don't remind me. And it wasn't even like he was a character, it was just Ed Sheeran in Game of Thrones. It's like that. I mean, don't get me wrong, they didn't put Ed Sheeran in this film, thankfully. No offence to Ed Sheeran, but yeah, there wasn't anything like that as such. But I did feel as if when they did callbacks to the original, trilogy they did it really well but as i said that would have been hilarious if they just cut to black after he gets knocked out i would have to say one other thing which again is like a double-edged sword is see in terms of the scenery did you think that was done well in these films what do you mean like environments there's some bits that are really well done you know your usual new zealand countryside and up the mountains those were beautiful that is kind of the note that i made that new zealand again star of the show the shots where they're climbing through the countryside gorgeous absolutely love that it's like one of the best bits of Lord of the Rings one of the best bits of this when we get into the CGI forests the CGI caves like so much computer generated environments in this that have such a strange glow to them it's not just the environments like the movie in general has a strange glow to them but every environment is so different in tone and appearance to the Lord of the Rings which is fine in many ways the movie's allowed to be its own thing the Hobbit itself the book was a somewhat different tone from the Lord of the Rings books as well but it just looks like such a departure in a pretty negative way I just felt like I kind of had a very icky taste from how each of the scenes looked but what are your thoughts? I feel as if in comparison to again the original trilogy which is going to be a running phrase of the episode so I apologise in advance but the fact that they use things like bigatures and they use a lot of practical sets because don't get me wrong there was still scenes CGI in the Lord of the Rings. Like, I'm not going to pretend that they made a huge Helm's Deep or they constructed the Mines of Moria because I'm pretty sure when they're running through the corridors that's all blue screen and there's bits in the Fellowship where Frodo's walking through Bag End and he's just like in a blue room. Very similar to what it was like for the prequel trilogy in Star Wars. Okay, one thing the Lord of the Rings films, they knew the limitations of their CGI. And so everything that they used for CGI was very subtle and low-key. They didn't really put too much into it to add like a lot of detail. In this, they've grown more confident in their CGI and so are making a lot more of it apparent CGI with a lot more detail to it. But the effect of that just makes it look a bit uncanny. Is, is that kind of your interpretation? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, not at all. I know what you mean. Funny enough, when I was watching this film with my partner, that's exactly what she was saying. There were some moments where she turned around to me and said, is this a video game? This looks like a video game. What I will say is, see in terms 
of CGI blockbusters and things. When I say this looks bad, I don't mean your cheesy knockoff film CGI, if that makes sense. Like, not your Birdemics, not your terrible CGI. In terms of CGI as a whole, it's serviceable for the most part. But when you're comparing it to the original trilogy, and again, I feel as if that is one of the biggest problems that we will get onto later, but because it was trying to compete with the reputation of its predecessor that we look at it a lot more critically and I see what you mean a lot of it just feels quite grand if that makes sense. In terms of Lake Town, Lake Town looks absolutely fantastic. And I actually think that during production, I can't remember the reason, but they had to build up Lake Town and they had to destroy it and then they had to rebuild it again. Or not destroy, that's the wrong word, but they had to take it down and then they had to rebuild it again. And the amount of attention to detail in Lake Town and places like that, those are the sets I have to say that are my favourite. Although they're not my favourite parts of the story, I can still appreciate how amazing it looks even though it looks like a kind of rundown Venice <laughs> with people living in these shacks above the water it's just so well done but again going back to your point about the CGI areas you're right it feels as if I don't want to say the easy option because I don't want to undermine the work of these artists that painstakingly tried to build the Lonely Mountains interior and things like that, but it definitely feels a lot more fake, I suppose. I mean, that is a problem that we'll definitely go on to talk about, but it doesn't feel real if that makes sense. When you look at Lord of the Rings, and in particular the Fellowship of the Ring, you see Aragorn fighting with the Urukai and Lurts and how that's just two guys dressed up fighting in the woods. And yeah. that is amazing. It's such a simple set, and yet it's just, it does so much more than if they had, I don't know, like a huge CGI backdrop to that fight. Whereas again, I think the problem is they were trying to make it a lot more grand and fantastical, but but then it counteracts to what they were trying to go for. Sometimes less is better. Totally agree. And again, I don't want to say, oh, it's all terrible and things, because I know a lot of people worked on this film, but I just, I don't think the end result was what they were expecting. But before we go on to the negatives, because I know there's a lot more opinions we have on what went wrong rather than what went right, but is there anything else you've got to say about the good parts of the trilogy? I liked Smog. Bold opinion. (laughs) I was going to say our listenership in Lake Town's going to go down. <laughs> just going back to Lake Town very quickly. I like they said it like a very wintry kind of setting. So it was like bits of ice is kind of floating around. I like that was a nice little touch. But just going back to Smog, I think the CGI on him was very good. It is hard to pull off a dragon in CGI without it looking too ridiculous or too cartoony. Too ridiculous in terms of fake and like janky or too cartoonish or too computer generated and i feel like it was a convincing looking dragon and i enjoyed the motion capture that they used with Benedict Cumberbatch and Andy Serkis to make it feel more lifelike in terms of its movements in terms of how it spoke and its mouth moved because it was such a long creature that it would curve around and in very kind of scary interesting ways and i think the Benedict Cumberbatch's portrayal of Smaug was brilliant oh i love it i have to say his raspy voice and that role as you said the way it moves because i don't think they actually had a solid image of Smog seeing the first film. I know you get the brief glimpse of him, but I don't think they really had an idea of what he was going to look like in the end. But no, I totally agree with you. The way that he moves and he has that very, I am 
fire. I am dead. You know, that kind of voice that is really damn cool. Yeah. But sorry, go on. I had to interject that. <laughs> I really enjoyed some of the musical themes, especially the, the Misty Mountain theme. Oh, yeah. I think is beautiful. I think it very much fits into the kind of the tone of this Tolkien series. It's such a beautiful composition and I enjoyed its reoccurrence, mostly in the first film, I think, over the others, but I think it did reprise in the other films. Funny enough, I know Howard Shore came back to compose some of the music for this and I think for the most part his music, as always, it's straight fire. Much like Smog burning down Dale, it is straight fire. (laughs) is absolutely fantastic. But there's one weird scene that I never thought of, to be honest, until someone brought it up. When I was researching this, I was watching a lot of retrospectives and things to see if there was anything that I'd missed in my initial watch-throughs. And one of the interesting ones was seeing the very first film where they're climbing up the trees and they're burning them and they're also burning down cinemas. (laughs) At the same time, that scene where Thorin goes to challenge them as the tree falls down, they actually played the Ringwraith music at that point. And I know it's supposed to be to put it in as like a big dramatic moment, you know, where he puffs up his chest, he pulls out his sword, and then you've got the dramatic Ringwraith music. But see, when you think of the implications, like as we talked about last week, the fact that it's done in the language of Mordor and it's more relevant for them. I'm not seen Thorin appropriated the song but I feel like he appropriated the song for his badass moment. It just kind of seems, again it's not a thing that initially when you're watching it it would put you off, you wouldn't really think much about it but the more you think about it the more you think huh that was a really bizarre choice for them to make. Mm -hmm. Again no I completely agree other than that the music is great and yeah I I do feel as if there are redeeming factors to this film. Another couple of things that I quite enjoyed, I've already touched on it but I thought the scene between Bilbo and Gollum, particularly the riddle game, was so well done because it is a real kind of highlight of the book, that kind of riddle game that they have going back and forth with each other. And I think that the movie really does it justice. And often the non-battle scenes are where the movie is at its best. When there's not like a high level of action, it feels a lot more grounded and rooted in its source material. But when they start deviating from that, is when it starts becoming a bit more of a CGI slop fest. And that particular riddle scene going back and forth is very fun because you find yourself also trying to solve the riddles with them. And like, I've seen the movie before. I've read the book before. I know what the riddles are, but I'm still like, hmm, what could this be? What is a Bilbo's pocket? (laughs) Oh my (laughs) God, it's gone. No, that is actually a great point because if you look back at the Lord of the Rings, you've got these huge battles. Don't get me wrong, they're mainly practical and obviously you get some of the CGI stuff there, like the Oliphant getting felled by Legolas, which we don't talk about. But in a way, the action in those films complemented the downtime moments and the character building stuff. You know, it wasn't just constant action. It wasn't just constant battles. They built up to it because it was this gradual crescendo into the finale of them taking themselves to Mordor for that like last fight and everything. But in terms of The Hobbit, you're right. It did feel as if when they had battle scenes, they sprinkled them throughout the film. It just kind of got boring after a while, like especially for the last one. They had a potentially interesting idea and it was just all the CGI elves, CGI dwarves fighting CGI orcs and everything and I'm completely behind you there I think that especially the scene between Gollum and Bilbo was just fantastically done and it 
is a very interesting moment where I think it kind of relates back to what Frodo was saying both in the books and the film where he discusses about how Bilbo should have killed Gollum essentially and even Bilbo in this film in the first film he nearly shanks him (laughs) from behind because he's got the ring on but chooses not to and Gandalf says that's the thing that takes true courage you know it's not about being this super macho action hero it's about knowing who you are and having the strength to essentially just commit to your own sense of ideals and morality and I think that is amazing and it's just so perfect but then it's undermined by Thorin and co killing a bunch of orcs and goblins in the next scene and you're like well can't have it both ways. Can't have your lambus bread and eat it too, because otherwise you're going to clear out Bilbo's store cupboard. Yeah, I actually made a note about like poor Bilbo being eaten out of house and home, especially with the cost of living crisis. Come on, guys. <laughs> I know. The Shire grocery list is more expensive by the day. But to be fair, can you imagine like a Hobbit pantry? It would be stocked full of everything. Pretty amazing, yeah. I'm very jealous of Bilbo's home in general. Same. It would be too small for me, I have to say, but I think we can make it work. (laughs) We can make it work. Do a wee bit of redecorating. Lift the ceiling a wee bit. We'll be fine. So this point is not so much the films, but just the story in general. But I very much enjoy the background behind Thorin getting the Oaken Shield title from like his fights with Azog and the log he used as a shield. I thought that was really cool. Just as like a small little side point. It feels very much like a D&D plot, doesn't it? Yeah, I'll be honest. I did name a character one time a very similar naming convention. It's not the green shield name, that's different. It is a cool name, to be fair. Especially when you hear Ian McKellen say it, and he's like Thorin Oakenshield. And you're like, oh my god, that is so cool. I mean, it's not like if you had Balfour come in, it's like Balfour Oakenshield. Now get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. And then my final good point, and again, this would normally irritate me, but I quite liked it, was the reunion of the council meeting in Rivendell, where you had Elrond, Saruman, and Galandriel there with Gandalf. And I was like, oh, they're the gangs back together. You're not wrong, actually. <laughs> it was a cool reunion. I kind of wish they kept it to that, though. And didn't have them coming back later to fight that weird fight against the, the Necromancer. Necromancer. Yeah. I left the room to go get some ice cream came back and all of a sudden Christopher Lee was just like and then Elrond was just like flinging his sword around and I was like what the fuck am I doing (laughs) (laughs) that mental image is amazing in itself but (laughs) what the hell Christopher Lee I think he died a year or two after but relatively soon after The Hobbit came out and he was like in his 90s wasn't he when they filmed that that can't have been him though that... well I know <laughs> no he didn't do flips he passed in 2015 well he was definitely a lot older of course when he did these and props to him for actually doing that but I'll leave that for the negative but it did feel unnecessary to bring them back at least for the later films like as you said that is just such a weird scene where it's like Gandalf's been captured and they're all there and then Gandalf returns to the party completely fine otherwise it's like oh sorry what's all this about uh, an Arkenstone Thorin I've had a bad day I'm sick of your shit don't know the day I've just had. Yeah, oh, and just the scene with Galandriel is really annoying there as well, when she did her whole, like, weird... What turned into negative Galadriel. Yeah, negative Galadriel. And that was, like, a scary scene. Didn't age particularly well in Lord of the Rings, but it was done for, like, a very brief moment, just kind of emphasise her potential turn to owning the ring. To have, like, an entire scene where she's doing that consistently, it just made her look like the drowned lady from, like, a horror movie. It just seemed very awkward. It didn't come across particularly well, in my opinion. Just wait till you see what 
but they did tour in Rings of Power. <laughs> oh, I agree with you. It didn't age well, as you said, in Lord of the Rings, and it doesn't really age well there. And speaking of things that didn't age well, will we go into the negatives? Yes, let's depart from what we thought was positive and wade into the dead swamp. Because I know we kind of had like a wee bit of smatterings of negativity there, but this time we can just drop everything, <laughs> get our knuckles out. Even in the positive section, we still just brought it back. It's really hard, though, because this is the one thing that, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's many things that I feel as if went wrong with the trilogy, even though there are positives, but the one thing that I personally think, above all else, and it's something that I don't think many people talk about as much, you know, people always point to the bad CGI, they point to the bad romance. Or Lady Gaga. (laughs) The one thing I think, above and beyond, is the worst part of this trilogy, is its lack of identity. And it's something I brought up to you when we were talking about doing this episode. It's the fact that, on the one hand, it's an adaptation of The Hobbit. The Hobbit is, as of course many of you out there will know, is a very child-friendly adventure fantasy romp where a hobbit gets taken, essentially, by... Or not taken physically, but he gets visited by a wizard who says, let's go on an adventure. He takes these dwarves who want to reclaim their mountain. You know, it's like a very much a stereotype typical fantasy, well I say stereotypical, that is the thing that stereotypes probably came from, but it's just a light-hearted adventure with quite a bittersweet ending you know, you get people who unfortunately fall in the battle and everything to protect their home, there's a lot of simplicity but a lot of lovely moments in it and just it's so well done, but when we look at the trilogy, it feels as if it's trying to be more of a Lord of the Rings prequel, if that makes sense, it's not trying to be the Hobbit because for the most part you get the bits initially at the very beginning where we get to know Bilbo, we get to know the other dwarves and everything and then at the very end they're just like eh, yeah I mean that, that that's all fine and good but remember those moments we didn't see Gandalf for? The bits that were just essentially an excuse to get him out the story because he was so overpowered. Yeah let's tie this into the return of Sauron and the Necromancer and all of this and there is just such a tonal clash with that. You've got a scene in the first film where, you know when you see Thorin's origin story, as you said, how he gets the name of Oakenshield and everything, and there's a scene in that where an orc straight up decapitates his dad, I'm sure, or his granddad, and holds up the severed head, and he's like, whoa! It's horrifying. But then, a couple of scenes later, you get them in Rivendell, and one of the dwarfs is like, oh, you got any chips? Is this the same film? It's just such a tonal clash, and I'm not saying you can't have humour in a film like this but yeah I, I just feel between that and the fact it is trying to link itself too heavily into Lord of the Rings there's just too much going on there. Yeah it certainly suffers from a tonal identity crisis. The Hobbit book was a more childlike more comedic tone than the Lord of the Rings trilogy and so if you're going to adapt it and want to do that tone instead of the Lord of the Rings style tone then do it and commit to it but they are caught between both trying to make it comedic like the Hobbit book was and trying to maintain the tone of the Lord of the Rings films, which people are familiar with and were such a success. 
And so you do get scenes like the trolls in the first movie who are bumbling idiots. They're almost like characters from a Roald Dahl story. But then you'll balance that out with Azog the Defiler and all those like serious orc pillaging and fighting and trying to make the council very serious and all that kind of stuff. And it just it feels like they don't quite understand what they're trying to be. The constantly referencing Lord of the Rings, bringing Legolas back in, it gives it a feel that they had so little confidence that people would be interested in this film on its own that they had to bring Legolas back into it but like what are your thoughts on bringing characters like Legolas and making so many references to Sauron I reference it as being a good thing having the council members from the last movie come in but what are your thoughts on having them as well like should they have refrained and just try and kept this its own film or I would say yes I feel as if it detracts from the overall story and again I agree with you I do think it was cool to see the original Council to see Bilbo and Frodo in the Shire at the very beginning and the very end. Ian McKellen obviously has to be there because he is integral to the overall story. Mm-hmm. I liked those moments when they were done sparingly because they didn't always flash back and forward between old Bilbo and then young Bilbo. They had it in very strategic places and I thought that was just so well done. But then, as we said, you have Sauron. Which, in all honesty, was just an excuse for Gandalf to go away in the story, because as I said, it was just too overpowered. And then he'd come back and be like, oh, I saved you from the trolls, or oh, I saved you from this situation. You know, there was no rhyme or reason. And I know what Peter Jackson and the writers were trying to do. They were trying to make this big narrative and everything. And I think it is commendable, to be honest. I think it's commendable that they gave it a shot. But when you have 90 plus year old Christopher Lee, swinging his stuff about being like leave Sauron to me. We know that doesn't go well. Yeah, yeah, obviously. That is the thing though. When you see Legolas on screen, you know he's not going to die because he's in the original trilogy. You know, other people like as I said, Christopher Lee as Saruman, you've got Hugo Weaving as Elrond, you've got Galadriel. These characters, and again with Gandalf as well, when he's captured by Sauron, then he's like, oh no, it's Sauron. We know you're not going to die here because you don't die until spoilers until Fellowship of the Ring so it feels more like a waste of time that could have been used building up the existing characters like as I said I really like the idea of Toriel and I know Evangeline Lily I think she said she agreed to it if they didn't put in a romance subplot and I think regardless they just did what they wanted. Yeah, I feel as if they're trying to, and again going back to this phrase, have the lamb spread and eat it too. They're trying to make their own story but then heavily link it into Lord of the Rings and it's just, it's two separate films. At the end of the day, Sauron and all of that, him trying to come back and everything, that is a separate film. That's why it's called The Lord of the Rings. That's who it's about. Exactly, yeah. The Hobbit is about the story of this hobbit there didn't need to be such an emphasis on Sauron and I mean even in the desolation of Smog, we don't really get to see Smog until the very end of that film and then slightly at the beginning of the third film that will never not <laughs> confuse the hell out of me I genuinely I turned around to my friend in the cinema and went wait is that it see at the very end where he does the whole I am fire I am death and you know Bilbo goes what have we done and then it cuts the black and I'm like what is a Sopranos ass ending here are we not going to see the desolation where's the desolation 
we watched the third one not too long after watching the second one like it was only a few days in it so it wasn't too big of a gap but just the after 20 minutes maybe smog was defeated my partner turned to me and was just like is that it what else is there to happen in this movie and i'd explain like there's a whole thing about a battle for erebor now and so she was like oh oh okay the battle scenes are always her least favorite part as well the fact that the movie was just all about that well, right, so not all about that but it was largely about that oh it was 90 percent about that yeah <laughs> yeah what was, was very much a i'm not gonna pay attention to this movie now i'm not gonna lie i had to really sit down and think who the five armies were yes we did this exact same thing. We had to figure out who it was. Because, like, you can't count this small group of dwarfs as their own army. Because they're not. There are 10 of them, or however, like 13 of them or something. But is it not the... And that, this is the technicality that really gets me. And I know the battle of the four armies might not be as eye-catching, as it were. But, you know, you've got the dwarfs that eventually come to rescue them. This is the way I interpret it anyway. You've got the dwarfs. You've got the elves. You've got the humans. And then you've got two sets of orcs that come in. Oh, you think it's two sets of orcs. See, that's what I thought, but then I thought, are they combining? Why wouldn't they just combine one set and the other? I mean, don't get me wrong, I know Rohan and Gondor are separate, but it's almost like the orcs and, you know, the Black Fleet or the fleet of ships that attack Gondor and the third film that obviously get taken over by ghosts. Do they count as a separate army? Do they count as... That's the way I interpreted it anyway, but it's really Mm. stupid. (laughs) It's just I don't want to be like lumping all orcs together, but it's just really well, stupid. But, well, this, if, if, if you don't, then you're all saying like that the two dwarf armies are separate. There's the dwarf army and then there's Thorin's group. And so is that two distinctive armies or are there distinctive orc armies? But then if they're working together though, I mean, I know that's simplifying it and grouping them together, but then you would just group the elves, the humans and the dwarfs together against the orcs. And then you'd have the battle of the two armies. Even just the two dwarf factions, you'd lump them together. So if you're lumping the orcs together, you should lump the dwarves together, in which case it is only four armies. This is such a stupid film. (laughs) This is genuinely the one that, bar the ending, the ending is the only bit I like about this film. The rest of it is just so damn stupid. And I went in, I rage paid to get into this film. You rage paid? Yeah, because I was like, I'm so angry about having to pay to go see this film, because it was my friend who was like, oh, do you want to finish it and see how this ends? And it's like, it wasn't bad enough that I thought, this is the worst thing ever, I'm never going to see it. But at the same time, I was like, I have to see how it ends, because it's just not bad. Again, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. If it was, then I would have never seen it, but I was just so angry paying for a ticket. Then I was like, right, okay, how are they going to mess this up? Surely there's no way this can be worse than the desolation of the smog, and lo and behold it was. As we said, the whole naming convention of it, because I think the original idea was the first one was going to be called An Unexpected Journey, and then the second one was going to be called There and Back Again. That is what I understood there, yeah. But then they changed the third one to There and Back Again after they called the second one Desolation of Smog, and then the third one turned into the Battle of the Five Armies because There and Back Again made no sense as a title. But as we've explained, neither does Battle of the Five Bloody Armies. It's just a mess. That that whole film is just a mess. And it actually links on to something we were kind of alluding to in the good parts of the film. And that is the overuse of CGI. At times, and don't get me wrong, in the 
the desolation of smog, there is a heavy use of CGI. I mean, the battle scene is kind of cool at times, but then you get them rolling and doing combo moves and things, which is just stupid. I hated them throwing the axes to each other and fighting. Like, that just seems so ridiculous. It just felt like a video game. And again, it feels weird saying that about Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit in general, but during the Battle of the Five Armies when the elves turn up to the Lonely Mountain, I can't confirm this, but I'm pretty sure that they're all just copied and pasted <laughs> together. They all just look the same. And that's not me being anti-elvish or anything. I mean, genuinely, they all just look as if they're the same CGI model. They do that a lot, though. And I know, yeah, I know. I can forgive them for that because that is the industry norm. I did find it look very strange when all the elves drew their bow in sync with each other. And I don't know if yeah. maybe that wasn't CGI. Maybe they just absolutely nailed, those actors nailed doing that scene of them all doing it together. But it did look very strange to me. I feel as if it's maybe not a problem of them copying and pasting, but more like, as you said, it's the way they move more like characters, as if they've been literally programmed to move and sync. And I know that's an elvish thing, and books and things are supposed to be perfect beings that have been practicing this for thousands of years and things, but it's just, it's really weird. Because the weirdest thing I found while researching this was the fact that the CGI Billy Conley's face in this oh, film. It looked awful. So apparently, this is so weird. So Billy Conley, for anyone who doesn't know, is a very famous Scottish comedian and he plays the... I can't even remember his name, but... Dane, isn't it? Dane, yeah, it's like Dane... The second. They're the second army or the third army, depending on how you're counting in this. But yeah, he leads the dwarf army. He's got like a weird CGI face, again, like he's out of a video game. And from what I understand, apparently they put prosthetics onto his face but then they realised you couldn't really see Billy Conley under the prosthetics or there was something wrong with the prosthetics so they had to CGI his face over it to make it look more like Billy Conley it's just bizarre to me that they would go to that effort to CGI someone who's already there and speaking of the looks of characters can I just point out I don't know how you feel about this but do you feel as if the dwarves almost don't look like dwarves at least not the ones in the Battle of the Five Armies, but the main fellowship, as it were, of dwarves. It varies from dwarf to dwarf. Yeah. You have some, like, Gloin, who looks very dwarfish. You have that older, very mature Balin. dwarf, the big nose, yeah, Balin, who looks very dwarfish. Even, I would say, Ian McTavish's character, Dwaylin, I think looks convincing enough as a dwarf. And there's a few of the others, too. Most of them don't have enough of a significant role to comment. But people like Richard Armitage's Thorin, Keely played by Aidan Turner, Feely played by Dean O'Gorman, and James Nesbitt's Beaufort. Oh yeah, 100% James Nesbitt, yeah. <laughs> they don't look dwarf-like. They look too humanoid. I think consistent kind of theme of those is generally they're not chunky. They're much more kind of lean than your understanding of a dwarf and they don't have the same kind of exaggerated features that dwarfs generally do. And so it, it does feel off. Aiden Turner's one in particular is the one I have the most issue with. I mean, he's supposed to be like a very young dwarf, I guess, hasn't quite filled out. He hasn't got like the long beard like the others do, and his nose isn't engorged, and he isn't more rotund than your standard dwarf is. So it might be that just a case of due to his age, he hasn't quite matured into that kind of appearance, because we've not really had much experience of seeing young dwarves otherwise. See, you 
say that, but there is one dwarf. I think his name is Ori, who's the more younger dwarf of the group. So you know the one who keeps asking for chips in Rivendale? Yes. Which yeah. I have to say was a line that made me recoil in horror. Because before anybody says probably hardcore Lord of the Rings, I'd, oh yeah, they mentioned chips in Lord of the Rings, which I think they did after the whole boil and mash him, stick him in a shoe speech. The wonders of what you can do with a potato. Yeah, there's a scene in Rivendale where this younger dwarf is like, oh, have you got any chips? And I was like, oh, what would Tolkien say? Would he be writing lines like that? But again, he has all of the features of a dwarf. He's got the, well, obviously he's got the prosthetics for a broader nose. You know, he's got the curls or rather like the, I don't know if it's not dreadlocks, but you know how it's braided hair coming down from the straight hair. So it's like they could have done it. And I kind of probably get why they didn't do it. But the skeptic in me thinks that they not want an ugly looking character or rather a dwarfish looking character for the love story and the main lead. I've just looked it up by the way. Feely and Keely are the youngest dwarves in the company. Oin is actually the brother to Gloin. Oh, so it was Ori we were looking up though, wasn't it? Ori, yeah. The remote kinsman of Thorin and just says, War a Greyhood, play the flute. Wow. <laughs> that is an amazing... <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Some of the dwarves are really kind of built out in their backstory, and then some of them just have no information. They're just there. With the Lord of the Rings Fellowship, and again, this is more of a criticism of Tolkien's work rather than the films, but with the Fellowship, you felt like you got to know each member. You don't feel that. You have three films with these dwarves, and I feel like I only really know maybe five of them of the, what, 13 dwarves? That was something I have to say, that when I first read the book, I was like, oh, Jesus, there's 13 of these guys. (laughs) I feel as if I related more to Bilbo, you know, when they first came in and they started smashing these plates, I was like, oh my god, there's 13 names. And that's the thing though, you're completely right. And again, it's not the film's fault because they are adapted from the original source material, but there are far too many of them that are there and you don't get the same exposure to them. I can't even remember James Nesbitt's character. All I see is James Nesbitt as a dwarf. I remember Keely and Feely because you're it rhymes. Balfour, I remember because oh, he's the big one that's always eating. Ha ha. You remember, of course, Thorin because he's the leader. You remember Balin because he actually is referenced in Lord of the Rings which I have to say, something that made me really proud was when my girlfriend and I, we were watching the Desolation of Smog and she saw Balin pop up and it got mentioned by name and she was like is that the guy who ran Moria before it got overtaken? And I was like crying in the corner going I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you remember the lore. But yeah, beyond that, it's like the others don't really get a chance to shine. I don't know how well we would have got to know them if the supplementary material was cut out, hunting Sauron and things like that. If that got cut out. Do you want to know a fun fact about Balin? Yeah, do too. He's the only dwarf to return to Bag End to visit Bilbo after the events of The Hobbit. To be fair, Thorin was dead. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what's his name? Feely and Keely. Feely and Keely, yeah. <laughs> Okay, they are let off. What happened to the other nine then? So you're saying Balin takes over, is it Moria or is it Erebor? Because like, who's now in charge of Erebor? Was that ever discussed? Because, I mean, the House of Durin's dead. So like, who else is there? I'm looking up on Comic Book Reporter. Some hard-hitting facts. I know. <laughs> oh, Dane. Yeah, I was about to say, it's Dane. That makes the most sense. Who the fuck? <laughs> who's Dane? <laughs> who's Dane? That's Billy Connolly. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, Billy Connolly is the uh, the Lord of Erebor, and then prospered for a few decades, and then Sauron came back and it faced ruin again. So the entire events of The Hobbit were for fucking naught, because Sauron rocked up and was like, actually, I'll have this. That is a cushy prize, though, isn't it? Billy Connolly rocking up after not talking to Thorin after years, and it's like, oh yeah, he's dead, I'm going to take over your mountain. Cheeky bastard. As Sauron's armies waged war across Middle-earth, hordes of Easterling soldiers swarmed into north to attack Erebor. The dwarves and the men of Dale took shelter in inside the Lonely Mountain whilst proving to feel a breach. It's unclear the long how the battle lasted. Dane and the King of Dale fought side by side and lost their lives protecting Erebor. The people inside the mountain were able to hold off the Eastlings for a long while. Eventually news spread of the One Ring's destruction and the Eastlings fled as the dwarves cut them down. For the first time since the ending of The Hobbit, peace was once again brought back to the kingdom, albeit with heavy losses. Their throne then passed to his son, Thorin Stonehelm. Not as cool as Oakenshield. Not quite, now. Say that now. You know, hadn't come into power and just as in the background going, you're not as cool as Oakenshield. The next suggested article is why the Balrog would demolish Smog in a Lord of the Rings deathmatch. Yeah, I feel as if Smog got severely... I know we were talking about this earlier, but I feel as if he got insanely... Not nerfed, particularly, but yeah, just absolutely... Again, ruined is the wrong word, but I mean, compared to some of the other characters, it was like, oh yeah, let's build up this huge threat and then dispatch of them in five minutes. Well, I'm not convinced that fire would do much against the Balrog considering it's already on fire. Yeah, but there's a whole argument that the Balrog's like a super demon of Middle-earth and everything, and I don't know, maybe it has like a magical black arrow that he can summon or something. Well, well, okay, we're getting into this now. I reckon... I reckon <laughs> the way this plays out, the Balrog gets his whip, whips around Smog, and then just absolutely like shafts him with his Balrog sword or whatever the fuck he's got. Yeah, but see, this is a question for you listeners tonight. Can the Balrog sword stab through a dragon of Middle-earth, or are its scales too tough? The implication of the Black Arrow was that it was just big. Like, I don't think it was any No, special. it's the material, is it not? Oh, I assumed it was just like a big thing of metal, and so firing that was a lot better than firing a general arrow, because they were like trying to fire arrows at it, and it was like, like it hit his mark. No, but it's not pierced through its hide. I think it's just, it just needed to be bigger and heavier. And I reckon whatever the Balrog has is probably some dark shit that's equivalent to a Black Arrow. Much like Peter Jackson, we feel like we have to come back and reference the Lord of the Rings. Which brings us on to the point of Legolas. I feel as if he didn't really have a point, to be honest, to be in the film. Like, I feel as if of all the cameo characters, he was the one that probably didn't deserve to be in it as much. And this is, again, no shade to Orlando Bloom, because I feel as if Orlando Bloom played the role really well. But at the same time, I didn't think it was necessary. One of the issues with doing a prequel and having someone who was cast in a film long ago to be in that prequel is the age. And then it doesn't make sense. Why is an elf look old? Older than he did a hundred years later. Just look at the Terminator. They did their best, it, it looked like, to make him seem the same, seem as young, but you could tell there were lines in his face that you're like, he's not the young person he was 20 years ago, or I guess 10, 15 years ago at that point. He looked not quite right, and his scenes, they were so silly, even from like a Legolas perspective, riding on the barrels and shooting people, and then they're riding the bats, going up with the bat, and then shooting the bat, and then sailing down onto the ground from there, and then they're running up the stones as they were falling. Why have they done this? Stop trying to make Legolas cooler than he needs to be. He's a cool archer. You don't need to add in extra things. It did feel weird that they wanted that spectacle and action set pieces there because obviously they couldn't have Boromir in there. They couldn't have Faragon even though 
Oh, Tick, the clear was around. Yeah. That hint at the end was so, oh God. It was a strider in the West or whatever it was. Sorry, it's just the way you said that. It's with all the energy of Woody from Toy Story. There's a strider in the West. <laughs> I will give Gimli's reference a pass. That was kind of funny. Yeah, it was like, oh, that's my son Gimli. It's like, okay, that I can believe. That was an innocent enough reference. But mm-hmm. again, the whole Legolas being there, you know he's going to live. As I said, you know he lives. You know he has a very happy and full life life after the events of Lord of the Rings so I did think that Toriel was going to die to be honest I kind of forgot that she lived at the end I was like oh where were you in the later films <laughs> <laughs> yeah I feel sorry for her character to be honest because I like the idea of a character and as I said her acting is still really good but the fact that they had to shoehorn this love drama romance that let's face it no one cared about there's just too much going on in the films you've got the main I don't even know what you call a group of 14 people because they're not the fellowship but you know you've got the whole group trying to get to the lonely mountain you've got sauron returning you've got the whole weird politics of lake town okay can i just talk about how much i hate some of the characters in lake town in particular stephen fry and worm tongue light whatever his name oh, was. alfred alfred that's the one the guy who plays alfred granted his acting is really good at the role is kind of slimy and you know kind of sleazy and everything he keeps coming back and I don't know why they keep reusing him because I'm like they keep giving him jobs and I'm like have you not learned your lesson this guy will not do that job oh I hate his character because he's obviously the comedic relief and it's like we've got 13 dwarves off screen half of them are the comedic relief he doesn't even get his comeuppance oh he does in the extended edition he gets thrown into the mouth of a I think it's an orc or a troll as he's dressed as a woman I, that's what I thought was going to happen because there was some like Attack on Titan shit going on in Dale and then I was like oh is he going to get eaten here and then like he gets saved by Bard fucking Chin McGee and, and then I'm like oh okay maybe he's going to make a whole deal here and then he's going to be eaten by another one or something like that but he doesn't he just runs off but I'm like oh yeah in the extended edition I think he's on a catapult or something and one of the coins falls out of his fake breast as it were of coins and it hits the trigger for him to get fired into the mouth of a troll and it chokes him. And I think it inadvertently saves Gandalf at some point. I didn't even know there was an extended edition. Christ, who wants to watch an extended edition of these movies? Well, before I go back to talking about how much I hated Stephen Fry's character, let me just say, the extended edition of The Desolation of Smog has one of the worst extended scenes I have ever seen in my life. So, in the extended edition, you know how Gandalf finds the lair of the orcs of Azog and everything and he's like oh no the orcs are preparing for battle and then that's the first time he meets Sauron the absolute crazy scene but in the extended edition he finds Thorin's dad and there, oh. yeah, Thorin's dad's apparently alive and kicking. There was a whole thing where Thorin was talking about how he was convinced that he was still alive and that he'd been hearing that he was still alive and then that never really got touched upon again. It's actually quite a poignant scene, surprisingly. He finds his dad and he's thrown into this cage. He's very dishevelled and everything. He's quite mentally drained, essentially. And they escape the orcs and it leads up to, you know, the scene where Gandalf faces off against the Necromancer. Right. And he's sitting there, Thorin's dad, I can't remember his name, but... Thrain, I think? Yeah, Thrain, that's the one. I was going to say Oakenshield Senior. 
But, yeah, Thrain, he's like, tell my son I love him, as the dark storm is brewing up around him, and Gandalf has like this very impassionated speech of saying, you will tell him that yourself. I kid you not, and this is 100% true. For anyone listening who doesn't believe me, please, please, please go look this scene up on YouTube. It is hilarious. Because Thrain gets caught by Sauron, Gahan reaches out, grabs him, pulls him in, and they put a Wilhelm scream over it. They kill off Thorin's dad, essentially, for a fucking Wilhelm scream. I'm bringing it up now on YouTube just to watch it. Please do. I'll wait. Oh my god, that was such an awkward Wilhelm scream. Wasn't it? What the fuck was that? The first time I saw that, I genuinely thought someone had edited the Wilhelm scream over. I thought it was like was a shitpost. dreadful. Why would they do that? I genuinely thought that was like a meme. 100% I thought that was a meme. And then I saw that was the real official thing. And it goes back to what was said about the total whiplash. It is just... Oh, it's so bad, isn't it? That was so poorly done. You'll never look at The Hobbit the same again after seeing that scene. That terrible scene aside, going back to what I was saying before about Stephen Fry, because I have to say I hated his character. And also, speaking of the extended editions, there is also a scene where you actually get to see him eat testicles. Yes, he discussed that. Stephen Fry discussed uh, what Peter Jackson made him do, like eating testicles and that kind of thing. It's a very, very interesting choice. I hate it. I absolutely hate that scene because I watched it. I was like, what is this? Is this like a comedy scene? Is this like SNL? What is this? I was like, no, 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 no it's real. We just got a guy eating bollocks in the middle of the Hobbit trilogy, sequel to one of the greatest trilogies of all time. Yeah. And I know he's supposed to be like, sleazy and horrible and everything, much like Alfred but I felt as if they overstayed the welcome like again it's this idea of tonal clash it's like you cannot have these light-hearted oh we're gonna reclaim the mountain blah 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 we're gonna kill the dragon and then have like this weird political drama on the side but with characters that feel like something out the thick of it rather than Game of Thrones or something you know it just nothing mixes it's like oil and water it just it doesn't mix but yeah no that's all I wanted to say about So what we didn't really kind of touch upon was the creation of these movies and like who was involved in it. And for a long time in the preparation of the movies, he eventually did step down from it, but was very key in the design and writing of the movies was Guillermo del Toro. And to me, these films very much display his influence. A lot of the character designs and set pieces feel almost like a Hellboy movie. There were some where like trolls and orcs had like mutilated body parts and would have replaced with a weapon. There was a couple I saw that were trolls that had chicken feet because they had like maces as their feet. And there were like trolls with big stone slabs on their head and there were ramming trolls. There was lots of like very strange character designs that felt very kind of out of place. They've kind of made a decision to change up a lot of the designs that I was very kind of attached to from Lord of the Rings. So it may, may be certainly that I have a pre-existing kind of notion of what they should look like and so was disappointed that they didn't look like that. But the orcs look very different. The goblins look very different. And the wargs look slightly different. On the wargs, apparently they wanted to appear a bit more fantasy-like and less like hyenas because in fantasy and Tolkien's work, wargs weren't very hyena-like, which is how they looked in the original trilogy. So they wanted to kind of move away from that. So that's fine. But I took a lot of issue with how the orcs looked. I didn't feel like they were the same species as what I'd grown used to seeing from the original trilogy. 
And the Goblin City, whilst it was very interesting to see the Goblin Society and a Goblin King and all that kind of thing, it still felt very Hellboy-ish. Like there was this strange CGI inner cave multi-level city with all these kind of planks. And there was like a little teeny goblins that rode on a little cart to deliver messages on a zip line and then big testicly chinned King Goblin. That was all very strange. I didn't enjoy that set piece. No, I was the same. Again, it's like on the one hand, they were trying to be more comedic with the Bolton Goblin King. I felt the orcs, at least then, and again, this will probably be the final time I say it, but in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I felt as if they were a lot more grittier. You could tell they were corrupted beings. The fact that they were hunched over with their dark features and they were just such twisted beings that you could believe they were beings that you would be afraid to meet in a dark alley or rather a dark field. You know, you wouldn't want to face these opponents whereas, don't get me wrong, the other ones did have creative designs but I just, I didn't like the fact they all felt CGI-esque constructions, you know. It sounds weird to call them that, but it didn't feel as if they were as real. As lifelike. Yeah, exactly. As lifelike as what we got before. And again, I'm not expecting a workshop to painstakingly do all the prosthetics and things for the orcs in this film, but at the same time, though, it feels like a step down. And especially with Azog, because I think they did have a prosthetic makeup for them initially, and then they decided to go the more CGI route which mm-hmm. personally I think armed that character because it's not like Gollum which at the time was a technological marvel and then they just kept him CGI which I totally agree I do think that they should have kept him as a CGI creature but for the orcs that nah, just it loses its fear factor, if that makes sense. It loses that sense of worry, that kind of... You know, you just see them and you think, alright, orcs, bad guys, great, yeah. Whereas you felt genuine concern when you saw the orcs in the other film, but nah, I totally agree with you. It's not something that I feel as if they did very well in the trilogy. Yeah, no, I don't think that they pulled that off particularly well. I think Manu Bennett did a good job as Azog in as best that he could. I'm a big fan of Manu Bennett. I enjoyed him in Spartacus and Arrow and those kind of properties but it didn't really sit amazing with me I didn't think that it came across very well but again that's it's just a personal preference on the sort of aesthetic of those characters and on those sort of monster designs the last one I want to touch on is frame rate so quite controversially there was a decision made to film the movie at 48 frames per second which is double the usual frame rate of a movie this was to kind of capture a much more high definition picture but does at times almost look like the movie movements are sped up and it was a lot more apparent when I was in the cinema and I watched this in the cinema wearing the special glasses you wore and a lot of people got very nauseous from it and people had to leave and people were sick watching the movie because it does make you a little bit dizzy kind of getting used to that frame rate and I remember like it did give me a bit of a headache when I watched it in the cinema didn't have as much of an issue in my most recent home watching I don't know if there is a different effect at work in the cinema as opposed to at home but it wasn't as jarring this time but I do remember finding that to be an unpleasant experience at the cinema watching it in that initial frame rate yeah I have to say I don't really remember noticing it as much as you said in the home release either but I mean I suppose it's like the avatar effect isn't it something that they've made purely for the cinema going experience that they want it to look as impressive as possible they want to try new things and new technology but yeah when you get it on DVD or home release you're like well okay it looks alright what I will say is I don't think this film looks bad 
bad per se. You know, there's effects that don't hold up or look quite janky, but I wouldn't say this is a bad looking film for the most part. But I know what you mean, the frame rate thing. That was a big thing at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, it didn't really get spoken about much after the initial movie. I think people kind of got used to it, I guess. But yeah, it was my first real experience with that and it did give me a headache watching the movie at the cinema. Are you sure that wasn't just the film itself? <laughs> no, no, it was, <laughs> <The frame rate. laughs> it was immediate. Seeing old Bilbo walking around his house in Bag End and then transition to him being young Bilbo, I was like, why is he walking so quickly? And like, ow, oh, my eyes are kind of hurting watching this. But yeah, I, I did adjust to it, but it did certainly initially feel jarring. Yeah, it's kind of weird, as you said, that they didn't really speak about it after. They just brushed it under the rug, really. To kind of summarise though, I feel as if The Hobbit is definitely one of those trilogies that I would say personally is overhated. It's almost like the prequels, but again, I wouldn't say it's as badly handled as the prequels, because much like the prequels, there are things to love about them, but at the same time, equally criticise. Because I know people online who have said they love new characters like Toriel, or they love the extra lore that's been put in, things like that but alternatively you get these weird rage youtubers that come in and they're like oh this is the worst thing ever oh this killed my family and you're like jesus christ but it's that way that they act as if it's the worst thing ever but i feel as if at the end of the day the thing that damages this film the most is the fact that Lord of the Rings was so good. It sounds like a weird thing to say, but it's just absolutely true in the sense that Lord of the Rings made such a cultural impact. I mean, to this day, we've been talking about it, hundreds of thousands of people have been talking about it, if not millions. It is just such an iconic franchise, and to go from the success of that to what eventually turned out to be The Hobbit, I mean, Peter Jackson was right in feeling apprehensive about what he could actually do with The Hobbit, because how do you follow up a near-perfect trilogy of films? As I said, I don't think this is as bad as some people criticise it to be, but because it's held to the same high regard as The Lord of the Rings, and it's the same with The Rings of Power, because that's also held to the same high regard as Lord of the Rings, then there's definitely a more harsher critique that's going to be placed on it. At the end of the day, I think there is still stuff to like about this film. Yeah, just kind of touching on, it's very similar to what you were saying. I don't think it deserves as much of the criticism as it often gets. I don't think that it is a fantastically enjoyable trilogy. I think it does go on too long. I think there is a lot of subplots it doesn't need to delve into, but there are good aspects of this trilogy, and it's still an enjoyable watch in many ways. Interesting story that is told. Toriel is an interesting one. There'll be a lot of criticism of her as well, because she's a woman and one of the big criticisms of Tolkien's work is kind of the lack of significant women which is why in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy we had Eowyn have more of a role and we were supposed to have Arwen have more of a role until kind of initial criticism from the Fellowship of the Ring and she kind of replaced her brother's character who isn't really in the movies and so she was supposed to be fighting in the Battle of Helm's Deep and was removed from that and so they already have kind of a history of including women more in the Lord of the Rings franchise than Tolkien had initially implemented and that doesn't often sit right with a certain demographic of people and I think that those people are often quite loud over their criticism of inclusion and so it is cool to see female Legolas kicking butt a little bit I just do wish that they hadn't included a romance subplot for her you understood in some aspects why it existed because it allowed her to have a connection with the dwarves and bridge that gap of hostility between the two races but it's still read as quite awkward 
awkward. The movie overall, as I've said, was enjoyable enough. It has its criticisms. It has its positives. I do recommend for those who enjoy Lord of the Rings, if they've not seen it due to the over-criticism, that they at least check it out. And just brace yourself to know that it's not going to be as good as Lord of the Rings, but it's still an enjoyable fantasy story. I do think that even though these films aren't as good as the original trilogy, and this is something that I have been saying throughout the whole episode, you've heard me say, oh, in the original trilogy this and the original trilogy that, because we have such a high respect for the original trilogy in the sense that we think that at the time, you know, it was just such a marvel at what they got away with, you know, with the practical effects, with the fact it was an adaptation of a book that was initially touted as being unfilmable. And then, of course, we got The Hobbit, which was rightfully so criticised as being very overstretched, it felt bloated, a lot of unnecessary material. There was just so much in it that wasn't needed. And at the end of the day, I think even though, despite all our criticisms, despite all of our joking and things, if you like this film trilogy, if you think, oh, this is the best thing ever, or even, dare say, oh, it's better than the Lord of the Rings trilogy, then you know what? If you love the Hobbit trilogy, fair enough. This podcast isn't here to say, oh, you should feel terrible for liking these set of films. If you like them, you love them, great for you. But if you haven't checked them out and you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I would say I'm completely co-signed what you're saying, Andrew. Don't let the critics tell you, oh, this is a terrible film, you should avoid it. Because it's not the worst. There's certainly worse material out there. And I mean, as someone who's watched the animated version of Return of the King, trust me, you got lucky with this one. <laughs> You got so lucky with this adaptation, so definitely go check it out if you haven't already and you're curious. And if you don't like it, fair enough. If you like it, also fair enough. But on that note, Andrew, thank you so much for, yeah, enduring these films again. (laughs) Thank you for asking me to sort of revisit the trilogy. It was good to rewatch it again after so many years. As always, if you want to check out more of our episodes on Lord of the Rings Month, as well as our other episodes on different topics, you can check us out on our website, chatsandami.com. I'd also like to thank our Pandalorian patrons, Robotic Battletoaster and Sonia. Once again, thank you so, so much for supporting the show. But yeah, if you would like to get more exclusive content on our Patreon, such as early access episodes, exclusive episodes, even commentary tracks, although not Lord of the Rings ones yet, we are working on that. Yeah, if you want to check that out, then as I said, check us out on patreon.com. But until then, thank you all so, so much for listening. Stay safe, stay awesome, and most importantly, stay hydrated.